Mom and I. We never wanted to see snow again. So we lived in Florida. Tiny place, but it was comfortable and we were happy. I was 20 when she died. And back then, I saw when someone was going to die, I saw flies. Black flies, death flies, I called them, circling people's faces. And in those last weeks, she was covered. Her whole face. I could barely see her eyes. And I, tr I tried to comfort her, but I could hardly look at her. And she saw that. Maybe something warm to push away such unpleasantries. Don't you want to hear about it? She was your wife. I think you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm just the bartender. Oh, yeah. Just Lloyd the bartender, pouring joy at the Overlook Hotel. I'll pour whatever you like, Mr. Torrance. Man takes a drink. The drink takes a drink. And then the drink takes a man. Ain't it so, Dad? Medicine. Medicine is what it is. Bonafide cure-all. The mind is a blackboard. And this is the eraser. man tries. He provides. But he's surrounded by mouths. And a family. A wife. A kid. Those mouths eat time. They eat your days on earth. They just gobble them up. It's enough to make a man sick. And this is the medicine. So tell me, Bob, are you going to take your medicine? I'm not. Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host Mike, and I am so happy after surviving the Devil's Rejects, we conclude our month of horror with the unlikely sequel, Doctor Sleep, by Mike Flanagan. I do like Mike Flanagan quite a bit. I think he's very talented. I'm not always in love with his work, but there is real artistry there in all the horror stuff that he does and i feel like it's exciting to know that hey this is a horror director it's cool that he's not just using horror to move on to other things like that 
asshole Cronenberg. Granted, I love all the Cronenberg stuff after his horror stuff, but still, it's like it's exciting to have a genre director. And I did not pay much attention to Dr. Sleep. You and our good buddy Dave mentioned like, oh, this is pretty good. And I was like, eh, all right. I, why, why make a sequel to The Shining? Why make a sequel to Psycho on all these other, you know, uh, established classics? How can anybody take something that Kubrick has done and make a sequel to it? And also, from what I understand, Kubrick's film is not even a good adaptation of King's original source material. Yeah, I, th- I think you've answered your question as far as why make a sequel. It's because <laughs> the original creator of this story universe universe was very displeased with <laughs> what he saw. Um, I'm not suggesting you go back to the 1997 ABC miniseries, uh, which much like the release of Dr. Sleep was predicated on another successful King adaptation, which was the reason for its existence. In that case, it was The Stand, I think came out in 94 and was very successful. Uh, there was the Langoliers uh, in between there. It it was kind of cool for a time. ABC was doing like a uh, almost annual like sweeps month. There was going to be like a miniseries based on a Stephen King work. Was it um, part of that? Doubt, no, it uh, was late 80s, early 90s. So uh, there was a gap there. Uh, I only mentioned the Langoliers because I think that's a kind of a weird one. Like, where did they pull that? Like, The Stand and The Shining are two titans of like the sort of the King's, King's mythos. But um, this one, the film, uh, Warner Brothers saw the uh, box office returns of It in 2017. And they said, okay, uh, we'll give you the money. We'll back up the truck for this. And I would say that it shows in Dr. Sleep. I, this is the first time I watched the director's cut, which, boy, Webb, uh, I believe you gifted me uh, this digital code. And my wife was motherfucking you the entire time because she saw me pulled up. She actually, out of the corner of her eye, saw me slide over to director's cut. And it, when you do it on iTunes, it'll pop up the runtime because you, you'll see the little bar pop up. Uh, and it doesn't fade away for a few seconds. And she goes, oh, cool yeah let's just throw a half hour more onto this our day is not packed enough let's just go with a three-hour version of dr sleep uh i had a great time with it um i would say that my wife not as much but she she did watch this one with me theatrically and she's not the world's biggest shining fan she i mean she likes it enough but this was not some sort of nerd out moment for her and admittedly not for myself either i I don't think that I was initially hyped for this, uh, even though, as you mentioned, Mike Flanagan, uh, I've, I have liked some of his work. I think he did Hush, uh, which I like, the sort of home invasion thriller, but I only caught up with that uh, on Netflix. I don't know if it was a Netflix original or how that came to be. I was just someone that, uh, you know, pre-COVID times, Thursday night, if there was a new movie that I was moderately interested in, I would see it. So in that regard, I got to be an early adopter and just break you saying, hey, Buddy, you need to get on this Dr. Sleep bandwagon that apparently did not come financially, only critically, because this did not turn out to be uh, certainly not a success like it at all. It was very much uh, an underperformer uh, in that regard. But uh, critically, I think this is what the high 70s, low 80s on Rotten Tomatoes. I I think, yeah, uh, mid to high 70s. I really was not expecting much. Well, frankly, I didn't hear much about Dr. Sleep, the book, to be honest with you. So I had no idea that this was something that fans really uh, uh, were attached to. And in terms of the director's cut, because I didn't experience the theatrical cut in theaters, I went straight to the director's cut. I'm not going back to, the th- not even like curiosity, because 
I don't want to take anything out from the director's cut. And from what I understand, even the chapters, the way that they have it organized is a little different. So I absolutely adore this. I, I do think it's one of the best horror films of the past like decade. Easy. I will say, I'll just defend the theatrical cut. It works. Um, I mean, it's a two and a half hour movie released theatrically. So it's, you know, it's longer than most, especially for like a horror film. Um, the best thing I can say about the director's cut is I had a hard time from memory seeing any of the padding, if you want to call it that, even though I was enjoying it, usually you can tell like, okay, they got a little more time here in the director. Cut. I couldn't tell. So uh, that's actually just a big credit to both versions that it didn't feel like anything was missing uh, with the shorter version. And I didn't feel like that there was just some unnecessary uh, scene choices here that you can just tell maybe the directors or the performers liked, and they just kind of padded out. It, uh, it feels both, both versions feel like a full course meal. Uh, and that there's so much great world building here that even if you have not uh, revisited The Shining, it's one of those sequels that I think totally works on its own, too. You get the vibe. You get this. And it's the fact that the hotel doesn't come into it until very late as far as the, a physical presence with our characters. It's it's obviously there as far as previous trauma. Uh, it's just so cool. It feels in a strange way like a Western in that regard. Like uh, the gunfight's going to take place at this sort of legendary mythic place. Uh, this weird battle of the minds between these shining dorks <laughs> <laughs> have it out as they just talk to each other. It's so good. It's so good. Rebecca Ferguson, uh, Ewan McGregor, uh, the, really the entire cast. I'm not as obviously familiar with, uh, is it, uh, Kylie uh, Curran, the uh, the child star here that's that's playing the new generation uh, of the I guess the uh, Shiners or whatever. Um, she's really good here, and and not just a. I would say like in the original Shining, the child is just kind of a prop for horror. I don't think with it oftentimes, and then obviously it's a younger actor there than here, but usually it's just you put a child in peril. It's just the idea of a kid. Uh, being in a, a horrific setting is enough. But I actually think sh that she gives like a really good performance here as well. And it's so badass is her character. She's such a, such a smart ass when it comes to talking shit to the villains. She's excellent. And, uh, the, uh, you know, a bad child actor is the kiss of death for most films. You get a bad child actor and, you know, that's it. And arguably one of the best child actors in, I don't know how long, uh, Jacob Tremblay shows up for what I think might be the most horrifying scene in in recent horror cinema. I have to say, I'm not a fan of Jacob Tremblay. Oh. And I felt like, yeah, finally, this is a part that uh, it suits him. <laughs> what, <laughs> what, a what happens to him? <laughs> yeah, that feels about right. <laughs> um, this This film is so good that I might make my wife sit through The Shining with me just so we can get to Dr. Steve. I know you mentioned that it works on its own, but I don't think you get the full effect. And one of the things that's interesting about Dr. Sleep and The Shining and their relationship is how they contrast each other so well. Stephen King definitely has a format or a vibe, a style that runs through a lot of his work. And the he has an affection for his characters, for all their flaws. Uh, he's very warm, and Kubrick is incredibly cold <laughs> to all of his characters. And, and that is what uh, Stephen King mentioned. And also, I think it's a very personal work for him, too, the book, because he was, as he described it, he was a functioning alcoholic, 
while he wrote that book. And so it's very much about that. And I don't get that sense in The Shining that alcoholism was a big aspect of it. It's more about the house and its effects on that one character specifically. Whereas you watch Dr. Sleep and all of a sudden it is very character driven and you're really feeling for Danny more so than just as like, oh, it's a, he's a child in peril. There's a lot more happening here and a lot of character building that's happening in Dr. Sleep that was not at all even hinted at in The Shining. And so it's a great sequel because it is not trying to redo what the original did. And it's kind of successful on its own terms. And it does an incredible feat, which is something I, I don't think I've ever seen because the circumstances have to be just right or wrong. You've got The Shining, which is an adaptation of a novel that is very different from its source material. And Doctor Sleep, which has to adapt the sequel to the book and the movie The Shining. I don't know how Mike Flanagan did it. I really don't. And this is such a beautiful work. And some of the criticism I read online was like, oh, it's a mess. It doesn't know what it's trying to be. It's a hybrid. I think it. I think he did it. I think he did it. Yeah, I really liked the, the approach to, um, you know, what was, I guess, perhaps missing um, or it was just a character trait, but it was not the primary motivating factor of the Jack Torrance character was his... Uh, substance abuse is alcoholism. <laughs> I would say in Kubrick's version, it just feels like he needs just a gentle nudge uh, because he is someone who's prone to aggression uh, and seems like he doesn't really care much for his family uh, at all. I don't think that was the point uh, of the source material. I think that's what most offended Stephen King was that it was a man who was struggling uh, but he didn't come to the hotel already hating his wife and child, <laughs> which I think in the initial car ride up in The Shining, that's you get that sense that Jack Nicholson is already ready to strangle them. He's already wanting a tremblay like moment with Danny <laughs> in the back. Um, but um, when you look at Doctor Sleep, uh, you know the, the tragedy of the uh, the character here played by McGregor, the, the grown up version of Dan, is that he suffers the same fate in some ways as his father, but for different reasons. Um, his substance abuse is all about masking that childhood trauma. And uh, instead of the worst traits uh, being borne out because of his uh, alcoholism, uh, he is really just tampering down anything. He, any goodness he could possibly do, uh, he's not allowing to happen because he is Literally, in this universe, in this world, he has closed himself off from other people like him. And the great thing about the, the plot of Dr. Sleep is that he allows himself to do that once. Once he finally is open to the world, he's open to other people's problems and not just sort of wallowing in his past trauma. So he's able to overcome that. You definitely do not get <laughs> – I find that interesting that there's you know a criticism that doesn't know what it wants to be because – Yes, I would say The Shining is very pointed in what it wants to be. And there's, you know, you can check out, was it uh, Room 237, the oh. documentary that goes all over. You talk about not knowing what it wants to be. All the, all the fan theories, all the, it's, it is a message board, uh, the movie. Yes. That's what that is. Oh my God, you, um, you nailed it. I've been trying to describe <laughs> that movie for years and how bad it is. That's exactly what it is. But it's interesting because I would say that, um, Kubrick did not. I mean, he. I think there's certainly some 
aesthetically confusing, not confusing as far as you don't understand what's happening in any given scene, but it is meant to muddle the waters as far as uh, what the ghosts uh, necessarily want, uh, where they come from and all of that. Uh, And that's fine. I think that version of this type of ghost story uh, where it's just, you can kind of bring your own sort of foreboding sense of like, uh, you know, there's a guy in a, what is it? A bear outfit that just loves to give blowjobs. And it's like, is that scary or, or not scary? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> depends on what you dig. <laughs> depends on what room you want to be in. Um, <laughs> here, I don't mind the fact that uh, all of the rules are sort of put in place and established. The fact that we do spend a lot of time with the villains. They're not just some sort of vague, a uh, vaguely threatening bartender <laughs> just <laughs> mean mugging you as he serves you alcohol. Uh, in fact, that conversation as it's played back in this one is a father son yeah. moment. It's a one-sided conversation. Oh. And I love that it's a one-sided conversation where the, he gets to talk to his father who doesn't get to participate in the conversation because the house doesn't know how to talk to a human being. Um, they just know how to talk to someone's whatever evil they have in them. That's all they can really directly interact with. You know, I think that it's probably not as hip or as cool as The Shining, which is weird to say something, you know, that's, uh, what, 40 years on is hip. But certainly, if you're a, a newly uh, discovering film geek, uh, The Shining would be the poster you'd want to put on your college dorm room. Probably not so much Dr. Sleep, because it is a movie about, like a lot of King's work, he loves people banding together. Yeah. To help others. If you go back to, uh, was the HBO series, the outsider that came on like a year or so ago, uh, the stand, I mean, the stand not only in title, but in execution of what that group of people were trying to do. It's even mentioned here. You have Dan telling this young girl that she's someone who will stand like that sort of thing. That's, it's a common refrain. And I don't know if that stuff, I don't know if the sentimentality is what people think of when it comes to Stephen King's works. And it's probably because stuff like The Shining stripped most of that out and it became so successful that they've forgotten what uh, what a sweetheart Uncle Stephen is when it comes to his characters. And you know, I the best thing that I can say about this film is that after watching it, I understand why Stephen King hates The Shining. I get it. <laughs> and, and that's not to say... That's impressive. Because <laughs> yes. I'm sure, as as movie guys, we're both big fans of Kubrick's work. And yeah. it's like, oh. wow, Flanagan and company kind of, they kind of convinced us. They kind of pulled us over. Well, but that's the thing. It's like, I, I still love The Shining. It came out in 4K uh, recently and a beautiful That's remaster. not how you do a podcast. A movie podcast, you say, that one sucks now. I thought it was good, but in point <laughs> of fact, it actually sucks now. <laughs> no, it's, it's tremendous. It, it's, it's still wonderful. But all of a sudden, after watching Doctor Sleep... I understand why the creator of the material would look at that adaptation and be like, "That's this is not what I intended. I get it. And that's how good Dr. Sleep is. And, and let's, let's go back to the actors, specifically Rebecca Ferguson. The villains have to exude some kind of charm or, or something that you want to see more of them on screen. There's got to be a reason for it. And she's right. Now, she is an attractive lady. And she's everything I've seen her in. I, I, for the most part, like her work. This performance is so good, and she is so frightening that <laughs> it's a weird thing to say. Like I couldn't even find her attractive. She ain't. She ain't that good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, buddy. Uh, not only is she wearing that stupid fucking hat. 
Uh, and I got, I was able to move past that. Her character's name is Rose the Hat. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'll just, you know, it's fine. She is, what's most impressive to me about her performance is whether it's like a vampire story or something where um, the villain needs something from someone else, uh, inevitably that desperation will, you know, it will ooze out of their pores in a sequence. Uh, and they become somewhat pathetic almost like you know when i think of like vampire stories there is that sort of obvious addiction element and there's a little bit of that here because these people need to consume other special human beings to sustain themselves and that that sort of reach for immortality to to live forever but she somehow manages to ride that line where clearly she's coming from a point of desperation but she always appears to be in control and the interesting thing about the film is she has many setbacks there there are multiple times where she is lured into a trap and it's hard to play that maintaining that sort of sinister presence but also this three-dimensional quality to her where she's not all-knowing and all-powerful she but she never allows that sort of facade to to break uh it is a really like delicate line that she's walking with this this character with the you know the the big bad here anytime she's on screen like i simultaneously am just riveted by her performance and just want to watch more and at the same time i don't want her on my screen because i know this character is going to do something horrific or plan something horrific and i don't want anything to happen to the wonderful danny who i'm you know have completely fallen for as an adult and somebody who i want to a cheer for and i'm completely rooting for abra as well i don't want any harm to come to any i don't want any harm to come to abra's parents and i don't want any harm to come to uh danny's buddies and so it's just it's it's nerve-wracking and i watched this this viewing for this podcast i saw the three-hour runtime and i was like yeah boy it is a long film i guess i'll put it on i'll watch it in chunks and i'm glued to the screen oh no oh yeah oh. it was it was one one continuous playthrough for me. And it was, I loved watching it in uh, 4k. I loved watching it with, you know, the nice sound and a dark room. Um, this was, uh, you know, last year for this, this podcast, it was our first swing of the, uh, at the plate to do uh, an October month. And we ended up doing capes and cows. We didn't really <laughs> dive into the, the scary. And I felt like this is it. This is, you know, we got through devil's rejects, uh, to this, this was going to be my big, like Halloween movie. I, I do want to point out, I don't know if I recognize it as much the first time around because I'm, I didn't read Dr. Sleep. So I'm still getting a firm grasp of like all these characters and sort of the rules uh, and the, the world that they live in, man, did I, you know, I, maybe it's just because we're both charmed by Rebecca Ferguson as Rose the hat. Uh, I find um, snake by Andy to be one of the most despicable creations. And and we're talking about a man who has written a vampire comes to town for Salem's lot. And it's a soap opera where this, this vampire just takes over uh, this small area. We've talked about the uh, uh, Randall flag um, and end of the world scenarios. Snakebite Andy, I think, is the fucking worst. Uh, and all I could think of is she represents to me uh, an individual like Twitter user who has her own personal crusade. And she we are introduced to this character where she's taking on pedophiles, basically men who are trying to meet underage girls for sex. And she's using her powers uh, to erase that uh, pleasure that they would ever derive from it and to put physical and mental shame on them that will last forever. 
And all that that character needs to do to be shifted from that is to be invited to the cool kids table. And suddenly she is consuming young children and taking everything, not only everything that they are, but everything that they will be like, Oh, let's find a kid who's going to become a great baseball player because he doesn't know it, but that's, he can read the pitcher's mind. He knows what's coming next. And there's some, that's one thing I really like about this film is yes, they build up Rose the hat, but the villains often talk about kind of with reverence and fear you know, they're the, the insects. They're the ones that are attacking the sort of smaller creatures, but there are big powerful forces in play. And in this case, it's the good guys. They don't even see Dan Torrance coming because somehow, you know, like most, um, good young men that Webb doesn't believe in from a link later film. He just drank away his youth and he was hidden from being proud on <laughs> by, by these parasites because he was spent his high school days drunk, <laughs> you know, playing football and chasing girls. But I, I love the fact that we're introduced to someone who's so noble and all it takes is for them to be included into a position of even more authority and power. And suddenly they're cool with picking on the innocent and the weak. That's me uh, throwing, you know, modern progressives under the bus on Twitter, I guess, where it's like. <laughs> Snakebite Andy. Uh, Emily uh, Lind. I don't know this uh, young actress, but uh, she certainly has a wide-eyed look where, um, you know, maybe a few years younger she would have uh, played the the main character of uh, uh, Abra. Yes. I guess we can't always have nice things because i do want to talk about one aspect of the film that is a bit of a letdown nope <laughs> <laughs> i was so, so close theme. to giving this five stars on letterbox i'm like is this i hate to do that with something so new because i've not lived with it for that long but it's like i just enjoy everything about this like it, it just it's an old fashioned big budget studio film that like takes you into this world. And it's like, it wasn't marketed as an event film, but for me it is, it feels yeah, like what an is. event movie should be. So go ahead. Let's hear the picks that have to be knitted here by, by web. No, no, it, it's really, it's almost like, uh, having too much of a good thing. And all of it happens in kind of the last chapter when they go back to the Overlook. There's a little too much fan service. You know, Rose the Hat's uh, strolling in the in the hotel and then you see the elevator doors open and the blood comes out and she's just kind of like, right on, and she keeps moving forward. I was like, what was the point of that scene? So it's like little things. I know she was... She was at the, uh, you know, I told you that room with the bears blowing people. She was getting into the kinks. She was like, <laughs> yeah, all right, let's see what the other room's got. <laughs> Perhaps. But uh, just a little bit too much fan service there. And uh, like I said, it, it's just a little too much of a good thing. Like, individually, I was like, oh, cool, look at this. Yeah, I remember this. I remember that. Ultimately, and that is uh, the, the book, uh, the final act does not actually take place there. It takes place on the campgrounds instead of the Overlook. But this was Mike Flanagan uh, giving you know Stephen King the ending to The Shining that he never got because in The Shining ends with the book ends with the Overlook Hotel burning down, and that's what he wanted to give. So it's it really ultimately the film is a love letter not only to Doctor Sleep but to The Shining, to Stephen King, and just uh, how much you can see how much. King's work means to Mike Flanagan, and and I, I don't know how any critic could look at this and not just 
be overwhelmed and be won over. So even even the even a high seventies on Rotten Tomatoes feels low to me. And I I I'm gonna go down and yeah, oh like recasting the Shining characters. You know that's that would have been like a big no no. I would I feel like most people would have avoided that entirely. But I it was wonderful. Like I was like great. They're not in the shadows of the performances from the first film, and it worked. Everything in this movie, for the most part, worked. And the stuff that didn't is just kind of like having too much of a good thing, as I mentioned. This film is a modern masterpiece. And I no longer give stars. I'm tired of it. <laughs> On Letterboxd. But if I were to, this is a five-star film. I, I, I freaking love this movie. And Webb, if he gave stars, would give... Uh... You know, an 11 to Ready Player One because just enough shining. One scene's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> That's all the fan, fan service you need. You know, I never thought I would in a, uh, you know, it's it's me playing Dirty Pool, but I would bring up Ready Player One as uh, a film that is subtle when it comes to its fan service. But I guess <laughs> in the shining sequence, maybe it is. I think that Steven Spielberg, I mean, he can do whatever he wants. He's Steven Spielberg. And he was just having so much fun recreating that stuff. I, I, maybe some purist uh, uh, didn't enjoy that or, you know, uh, blasphemy to ever even touch The Shining. But I, he was having such a good time. I had a fun time. Oh, no. I loved it because uh, it felt like the only um, reference that he got. You know, I'm talking <laughs> about these video games and shit. And he's like, I guess this is what the kid's like. <laughs> That's what I'm getting paid the big bucks for. But when he got to uh, name check uh, Kubrick, when he got to go back and play with those toys, yeah, he... It was the only element of joy from that film, I thought. And, you know, you go back to his filmography, back to, what was it, 2000 when he made Artificial Intelligence. And that's a film that Kubrick was working on for years. And he kept, he was so excited for it. And then Kubrick eventually said, I don't think I can make this film. There's too much human emotion in it. I think this is perfect for you. And even then, uh, Spielberg was like, no, I, I can't. You've been working on this. You have to do it. And it was only after he died, he was like, well, now it's not going to get made, so now I have to do it. <laughs> now Uncle Stanley won't be around to be like, eh, the movie's kind of shit. <laughs> 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 that's, that's why I felt comfortable doing it then. <laughs> I I feel bad when I uh, read Orson Welles' quotes where he's like, you know, Antonioni can eat a piece of shit. He didn't say that, but, you know, ultimately, <laughs> it's my hero's getting mad at my other heroes and talking shit about them. And it's lovely to see guys like Spielberg or Flanagan be like, I love these guys. Let me give them uh, this love letter. And so I'm, I'm very happy with this film. I'm glad that you and Dave are in my life and that you mentioned to me like, hey, you need to see this. And so I'm glad that we get to bond over stuff like this. So thrilled, so thrilled. Yeah, I'll play that part since he's not, you know, he can't defend himself. I'm pretty sure Dave got his love of Dr. Sleep from me. Uh, <laughs> and he probably just raced to tweet about it along with all the other shitheads and malcontents on there like <laughs> Snake Snakebite Andy or whatever the fuck she is. Horrible people. Horrible. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this is sometime love letters can look like artificial intelligence. And then you have uh, this one, uh, which has to thread the needle between two Titans and uh, Flanagan did it. So maybe how to, he ought to remake artificial intelligence next and be like, <laughs> no, no, give it to me. <laughs> I'll do it better.
Yes, by cutting off cable TV and the beer supply, I can ensure an honest winter's work out of those low lights. Sir, did you ever stop to think that maybe it was doing this that caused the previous caretakers to go insane and murder their families? Hmm, perhaps. Tell you what, we come back and everyone's slaughtered, I owe you a Coke. Hmm, cable's out. Think I'll have a beer. Not a drop in the house. What do you know? Palmer, I'm impressed. You're taking this quite well. I'll kill you! I'll kill all of you! Palmer! Sorry. Sorry. Don't worry. There's plenty I can do to keep myself occupied. Maybe I'll check out that axe collection. See you later. Mom, is Dad gonna kill us? We're just gonna have to wait and see. So, what'll it be, Homer? Mo, give me a beer! No. Not unless you kill your family. Why should I kill my family? Uh, they'd be much happier as ghosts. You don't look so happy. Oh, I'm happy. I'm very happy. La, 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 see? Now waste your family, I'll give you a beer.